This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Hey, Val, how are you? Hi, Ken. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I want to credit you um, for coming up with this sort of idea of asking every guest before I start what the idea of um, being Vietnamese or the just idea of Vietnam, what it means to them. Um, can we talk about sort of how, you know, how that came about? Uh, sure. I, I recall it, you know, you were thinking about a question, sort of an anchor question, right, for your podcast. And originally it was going to be, have you been to Vietnam? And that's, you know, that's a good question to ask, but it's a yes or no question. Right. I think uh, I was like, well, what's something that's more open-ended? And it also is a sort of a, an ode to one of my favorite podcasts on being with Krista Tippett. And she asked the question, what's, what was your spiritual background growing up? Um, and so I think asking what, you know, Vietnamese, the term Vietnamese is, is sort of uh, loaded in, in, in many ways. And so I thought that that's sort of a good comparison question to, to what your spiritual background is because Vietnamese identity is so, so malleable. We spend a lot of time together talking about that idea of, um, being Vietnamese, can you tell me a little bit about what it means for you? I should have prepared better because I knew you were going to ask this question. But um, we can move on to another topic and then come back. No, no, no. It's I. I feel like we're going to have a long conversation, so we should just hit them one by one. I suppose. Yeah. Um, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? Um, for me, I've had the fortune of being able to live in Vietnam, right? And also living in America. And I think that's really helped me inform what being Vietnamese is to me. And it's not um, its not necessarily a singular identity. It's very much a complex identity because it's one that is sort of attached to all these hyphenated identities all over the world because there's a diaspora, there's a refugee community that dispersed, uh, that most, a lot of people dispersed after 75. And because of that, I think it's almost um, sort of parallels a Jewish identity in, in many ways. When people say they're Jewish, they're, you, can, you sort of can lock in that sort of, to Israel for some people, but there, it's so, so it's much more expansive than that. And um, and you know, I I always talk about the idea of when I'm in Vietnam, I feel very American. But or honestly, mostly anywhere else in the world other than America. But when I'm in America, I feel very very Vietnamese. And um, 
I mean, identity is a tricky thing. So I, I don't think of yeah, being Vietnamese as truly identity because it, it really um, encompasses so much of my life and what I do and how I live my life and like the actions that I do. And um, it, it is me, Vietnamese is me as much as American is me. Um, we all sort of have, again, these complex identities, complex um, characteristics and traits of ourselves. And I think um, for me, it's, it's, yeah, part of my, the search for, the continuing search of who I am always. And I think it's, it's fluid. It's not, it's never stagnant. I'm always figuring out like the same question of what it means to be human, which is also a question that Krista Tippett asked on her podcast, like, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? And that's, that's a, a question that I don't, I can't really answer right now, because it's something I'm still searching for. Do you think 30 years, 300 years from now, being any particular anything matters? Do you think being or retaining this identity or even talking about it right now on a podcast? even matters 300 years from now when we're all blended and everybody's, you know, like what's that movie with Kevin Costner and Waterworld and everybody's sort of like the same tone. Is it important that we even kind of even ask ourselves this question? Totally. I think like celebrating difference is very important to the experience of society and being human and feeling like you belong to a community. Uh, I think people tend to want to find the commonality all the time. And I think that is sort of a very superficial way to look at the way we live, because if we don't distinguish difference, then we don't kind of distinguish suffering. We don't distinguish class. We don't distinguish um, discrimination, prejudice, when all these things will exist. And even in 300 years, when people think that, you know, the way that the world is moving, maybe there will be attributes that are very similar and identities will feel the same, but there will be a way where certain people, certain classes will put down another group because say, well, 300 years ago, your family was Vietnamese, but my family was X, Y, Z. So there's always, I think it's human instinct for better, for worse to create these hierarchies. And I don't think, you know, 300 years from now, there's going to be some utopia where everyone's equal. And I, 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 I think the idea of difference is important. You know, Audrey Lord talks about, you know, she was this um, feminist writer and, and a lot of she was a you know uh, African American feminist writer, and a lot of white feminists were like, "Oh, you don't try to distinguish yourself as a black feminist and and white feminists. We're all feminists." And she's like, "No, I come from a very specific background, and that we have to acknowledge that difference in order for us to move forward and try to build more like justice and equitable societies. We need to realize that there are differences that divide us that." create systemic racism, that creates systemic inequality. And um, I would like to think that some of those systemic, um, you know, challenges and things that distinguish us on that level will sort of go away. But I don't think our identities just because we might all look 
you know, in a similar fashion, that the way we treat each other will be that different, to be honest. These are all very nuanced details or talking about an idea of being Vietnamese or the identity. When I think about you um, in the early days of meeting you and my earliest recollections of who you are, weirdly, it, I think about a photographer shooting rock concerts, right? I mean, that's my sort of my earliest sort of thoughts of um, what you did professionally. Can you take me, I know that there's much more to, to you than that particular period in time, but I've never really kind of uh, asked you about that, but I'm curious about that particular po point in your formation. Can you tell me a little bit about the um, photography that you did um, in New York and how you got into it? Um, sure. So I was, I think, um, right after I graduated from college, I went to NYU and um, I, you know, I graduated with a politics, international relations degree. And I was planning to be a lawyer for a long time, but I always had this sort of um, passion for, for visual arts, visual storytelling, especially photography and cinema. And I bought myself a digital camera as like a graduation gift to myself. I told, you know, I was like, okay, well, I, I went four years. I got my undergraduate in a degree that I thought my parents would want me to have. So this is sort of a, a creative gift to myself. And um, I mean, I don't remember necessarily like the very first concert I went to with my camera, but I remember just going there. And um, I've always been a person who, who looks at the world in a very visual and spatial way. And um, when I went to a concert, even before I brought my camera, I'd always just imagine myself taking pictures or like, like, and like just really admiring how um, the lighting of a concert or sort of the setup and um, how, you know, a performer moved and how I would love to capture that on the film. And so, yeah, I just brought a camera to a concert one day. And this is like before, you know, iPhones, this is like 2000 five 2006 and so you know when you go to a concert today there's every single person has their iphone up and they're actually looking watching the concert primarily through their screen their screen right um and but back in the day people weren't taking out their phones um and actually not a lot of people had digital cameras too and um so it was, it was a different time it's crazy just in the span of like 15 years how how concerts have changed and um yeah i brought my camera and i just like took some photos and i just i kept on going to concerts um me and my my freshman year roommate christopher kelly he was a musician and we used to go to concerts like three or four times a week in new york it was great you can go to like radiohead one night and then oh. like uh wu-tang clan the next night and it was just so it was like, you know, being a college student, you want to just immerse yourself. You're, you're so young and energetic. You want to like be part of that energy. And, and New York, obviously, like every big act toward New York, it was definitely like one of their first stops on their on their big tours. Um, 
And yeah, I just started taking photos and I started posting it. I think Flickr had just started. And um, I started posting photos and that was like blogs were just blowing up and my, you know, people would just start using, they would just take, I would put like a Creative Commons license on it, which basically just says, you know, you know anyone could use it. And um, people would take my photos and just credit me and, and link back to my Flickr. And, you know, within a, a few, a few months, months, like I would see that my, um, my, my Flickr account would get like 10,000 views in a photo or something. And like, who was like looking at my photos? And I could tell, you know, you could see who, where it was being linked from. And I would see all these blogs that would just use my photos. And I was like, well, this is sort of, this is cool, but it's also like, how do I monetize this? And right. how do I, how do I make this into some sort of, uh, take some utility out of this, right? And so I, I would contact the, the editors of these blogs and they were just starting with these blogs, which they're huge now, like Brooklyn Vegan, Stereo Gum, Pitchfork. These were just like really small blogs at the time. Um, and I was like, hey, you're using my photo. Thanks for the credit. You know, if you need like staff photographers, I'm down. And I was, I was literally like the first staff photographer of Brooklyn Vegan, which is a huge music site in New York. It's like millions of, of you know unique visitors today um but at the time he was he was just a vegan in brooklyn that's why it's called brooklyn vegan um but yeah over time i started going to concerts like shoot like two concerts a night and then rolling stone contacted me like the new york times used my photos and it just kind of um expanded from there and i just love the idea of like capturing uh, another art form through my art form right? Capturing music through photography and how it was almost a challenge to me. How do you, how do you take an image, a single image of a musical moment? And um, it was, yeah, it was, I mean, really fun times. It was like really wild times in New York actually too. In the, in the early days um, have, having that digital camera, were you given access in the very, before the, the big blogs or magazines would reach out to you, were you given access to the stage or how did you get shots that were, you know, able to be of any quality um, if you weren't given access to the stage or, you know, backstage? Um, you know, I went to a lot of like small shows first, like a lot of club shows and you can kind of like sneak your way up this hop. And my friend, Chris, he would go to the shows with me and he just has no shame and he would just, you know, plow through to the front and he would just take my arm and pull me and we'd get to the front of like Radiohead and like I remember seeing Coldplay with like 90 people and I, I shot Adele's very first concert in America. It was at this place called Joe's Pub. It and, was and you weren't being commissioned for any of that yet? Uh, the Joe's Pub one was, but like Coldplay, Radiohead, no, I would just, you know, I'd buy a ticket and I actually, you know, at this is this is post 9-11, so there was security, but they weren't checking for cameras. Um, and I I would sometimes sneak it in if they would sometimes they would start being um, pretty uh, anal about like bringing in cameras. So I'd bring my book bag and I'd like stuff it with dirty underwear and like gym clothes, and I'd surround my camera with this stuff. 
and then they would open it they would immediately see the dirty gym clothes and they would not want to go through it and then i just you know i went in with fucking brilliant fucking brilliant it's like so smart wow that you know you think back a lot of um people that get started in any industry or would you say that that's sort of like the the start of where you know directing and all of your sort of art pursuit came from no i would say like the very first time that i thought i like actually had some artistic talent was i was 15 i was taking like a photography class one of the the first um assignments was to make a pinhole camera right that's like the og type of cameras you basically just take like a shoebox put a hole in it and uh, you know you put a piece of photographic paper on the other end and you point it at something for x number of seconds and it would create an image and i remember you know it was sophomore year of high school and i went outside and i saw a rearview mirror and I took a photo of this rearview mirror, just thinking, oh, this is like interesting shape. The light is hitting in a, a certain way. I don't know what the image is gonna look like, right? That's how film used to be. And a week later, uh, my teacher, the photography teacher was just like, hey, we just developed all the classes, um, pinhole photos. And there was one photo that stood out and it really blew my mind because it's such an abstract image and it takes you so long to understand what it is. And I, I, you know, all the years I've been teaching photography, I don't think I've seen a first image like this. And then she, I, I, I was just like playing around with my friends, like talking to my classmates, like not even listening to what she was saying. And then she took out my photo and it really blew my mind because I, for the longest time, I mean, we can go back to like when I first started getting the visual arts, but like for a long time, I've been into visual arts by like sketching and drawing and I, you know, I made some shorts before, but I never had that reinforcement from, from an, a, someone who had a bit of authority, right? This is my art teacher, my right. photography teacher. And, and to have that um, reinforcement, that validation from someone, especially when you're young, in a creative field when it's very subjective it, it really i think um inspired me to to that i had some talent in in visual storytelling or visual art and i i, I always sort of remember that moment um in in when i'm making something today and i feel unsure of myself that me pointing a camera at something unknown to create something that was so um impactful on someone it, it's that's for me that's the beauty of art like creating um something meaningful out of out of thin air in many ways okay let me let me all right let's backtrack to that pinhole camera because was it by design did you actually know that you what you were creating was something abstract somebody's going to appreciate it on the other end or at least something that's like cool or was it just an assignment you just really didn't think about it you just kind of went through it did you design it did you have intention yeah i mean i had intention that what i saw at the time was beautiful to me 
and I captured it, but I didn't, I think I was too young. I, or, I mean, sometimes people think like, I mean, art and creativity is, is, um, it's not learned. It's something born and it's intuition. And I don't know, I can't answer that question. It's, I think you can definitely work on your art and you get better, but sometimes it's also random and, and lucky too, to be completely honest. And um, I, I remember just being a rush that class was about to end and I was out, you know, I had the, the camera and I saw something interesting and I, and I captured it. And, that's kind of the story. It, it, if it was intentional, I mean, the intention is, cap. I think the intention of art is to, to capture beauty and for me in many ways. So um, that's what I went out to do that day. And I didn't think anything of it until, you know, I think validation, people might say like validation is overrated, but we're making, I think as artists, we, we're, for me, I think it would be a selfish endeavor to think of art as something purely for yourself, that it is part of an audience. Like even the idea of cinema, like there's a difference between someone who may, the, you know, they say the Lumiere brothers created cinema, but they didn't actually make the first motion picture. Right. But the distinction of making cinema is different because they made a motion picture for an audience. And that's what cinema is, right? It's not just creating the physical object of a motion picture, but making the motion picture for someone to see it and feel it and, and find meaning in it. And I think that's um, sort of, I understood that in that moment when I made something and I, and I, someone else appreciated it, right? There was a, a audience response to what I made. Okay. We're gonna go back to this whole uh, rock music photography but I'm going to make a weird, strange segue right now that has everything to do with what you just said. And you can tell me if you don't want to talk about it, all right? There's a piece of artwork directly behind you. <laughs> can you talk about that? The brown piece of art on the, on the, um, on the wall. Yeah, it's like an $8,000 piece I bought from Sotheby's. Um... Has anybody ever asked you about that? I mean, on, you know, on a podcast? Uh, yeah, no, they, I mean, they say it's beautiful. They're like, what is this wood piece of art behind you? Like, the structure. But a lot of people know the story. Um, so you're not breaking any news here, Ken. Oh, I, I didn't. I've, I've always wanted to hear the, the real explanation of really having the balls to put something up. Like, I wouldn't, like, be able to defend it, right? And something that you and I it's a theme that but what do you see about. first first before I answer the question what what do you see like not knowing what it is what does it look like to you are you asking me as a friend that has been over your house before and I'm asking you as someone who's never as 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 a listener or viewer of your podcast like not knowing anything what what would you interpret it as I don't we can't see the whole thing we okay. can see a part of it. Um, but if we did see the whole thing, okay, to answer that question, I'd be one of the first guys to say, you know what, I am kind of intimidated to answer what I really believe that that is, right? Uh, just my personality, I'm just like, I'm unsure. And 
I always marveled the fact that you're very sure of the decisions that you make in the movies that you you put together in the dishes that you make for dinners um with our friends um and then you throw up you put up that piece of art and I think it it's symbolic of the courage of somebody who's willing to 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 make to make art and defend it you know it's it's uh it's representative of who you are and i kind of wanted to get to that right i want to fish for that sort of angle well it's not really what it, I, don't, I don't really care what it is i just want to kind of hear sort of like your okay well very kind of you to say all that um uh it's it's um it's something i made from the packing material that i had when i moved into this place um i was looking for art to put up on the wall like i was going to put up a friend's um photograph a painting but i really loved the texture of this packing material and i knew i was just kind of throw it out and so it reminded me of a lot of art that i've seen and there was a you know i the texture of it is really interesting and you can form it into many things and also it reminded me of um the material you find in a bird's nest and i thought having moved into a new place this art also this is symbolizes the idea of a nest building a nest and building a home and building a place of shelter and i just threw up on the wall and every you know when it first when i first put it up it it it's it's very flimsy so every morning it would change shape and i thought that was really interesting mm -hmm. too cuz like every day i woke up and this art kind of morphs into something new and um and i thought it was just going to be temporary but it's been up for almost a year now um and i i i think people you know i i'm used to it it's something that creates a sense of uh it's like a natural material that adds um little hominess to to I live in a loft so it's very industrial and having this gives it I guess sort of a more organic feel in a way um yeah I'm not trying to break new ground I just kind of wanted to hear okay but yeah I mean I was just like I'm trying to be a more intentional even like what I do with my my waste right what yeah what with the materials that I throw out like how can I utilize things that I was planning to throw out and and how do i be more intentional about you know the materials that i use in my life and like the meaning behind each piece of art in in my um uh, in my living space okay so uh, when you're putting up something like that you don't have all the what all the words you just ex expressed to me you don't have all that figured out those words have to come over time right so when the act of putting something like that up did you think about were you concurrently thinking about what you just explained to me or did it come as an impulse when you were like playing with that thing and you're just like oh let me put it up and i guess what i'm asking is is was it a gradual process or you already you looked at it you were inspired by the meaning of it and you put it up and it was a very quick thing uh you know I'm speaking for this specific piece I guess it was a gradual process um 
I, you know, I, when I was younger, I dabbled in sculpture too and, and painting and just mixed media art. And um, I, I was, at the time, I was just like, oh, this aesthetically, it'll be aesthetically pleasing, right? And it's not, I'm not throwing out all this material. So those two aspects of this piece were immediate. Um, but like in terms of it being like the symbolism of it being a nest, it was until I put it up there that 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 really sort of um, solidified in my mind that oh this looks like a nest. So there's it's not just aesthetic quality, and I think that's that's how I do art in general. Is like in the initial creation of something, you have one intention, but as you keep on creating it, and when you finish it the meaning evolves. And um, again, that's what I'm drawn to in sort of art, social sciences, that it's not necessarily uh, fixed. Everything is evolving. And that's the process that I think uh, many modern day humans, we sort of uh, get fixated on the end product, the end result. And we just kind of want to force a story that we're shaping, a, a song that we're writing, a poem. We want it to come out a certain way because we think in our head, you know, it's got to be delivered a certain way. But really, it's along the journey to get to that sort of end product is so ever changing. And it's hard to be reminded of that all the time when, you know, when we're in such a delivery oriented world like you know i try to think of like we talk about this a lot and just as a refresher to your listeners the idea of intention behind your choices and it's not the the how but the why of things and for me i think I like to think, and, and a lot of people think this, like obviously human beings are we're part of nature, right? Um, so everything we create, our inventions are extension of nature. Therefore, our art is nature as well. So everything we create is nature. And we that's, that's our kind of connection to the natural world. And not just the connection, it is the natural. We are the natural world. Everything that is created is the natural world because of that. But at the same time, because we're human and what distinguishes us from, say, other animals that don't have this sort of, um, you know, consciousness of, of what they create, or what they create is very utilitarian or functional. That's what makes it different. Like the reason that um, people might say, why do we need art? That, uh, why are we funding arts and why aren't we just saving people from world hunger and giving people shelter. It's like, we're art, science, music, movies, culture, they're all trying to, they're, they're tools to help us realize what it means to be human, to define the meaning of being human in many ways. And that's where you kind of distinguish between the creation of something and the meaning of something, right? And I think that is a process that I've kind of been honing and thinking about in everything I create is like, 
you know, the, the, the process of making something and how that brings me joy, but also the meaning and the value it, it can create once it's done. And the, not just the value it gives me, but the value it gives everyone who looks at it and what meaning that they place on that same object that I might not have intended, right? It reminds me a lot about um, how messy life is. Really messy. What we just went through in the last um, four years, politically here in the United States, it's, it's a messy, um, really ugly feeling that we went through. But, you know, we've talked a lot about how in order for things to kind of arrive at where they where they do, we kind of have to go through that process. It's very much like love almost, right? We sometimes get into these really gnarly fights with our family, our, our lovers, or, um, but we don't realize where the end game is. And I think that's how sometimes we end up in divorce or we end up breaking up because we don't, we don't see sort of like the, where we land at the end of it all. And, this idea, like, I think I come from a different, a little bit different generation than you do. Um, and I like to talk to you about this um, segue into this idea of like, your generation and the way you guys see love. And I'm on the tail end of like this older generation. Really, we don't, you know, especially Vietnamese Catholics, we don't, you know, want ever divorce, we come from this sort of like rigid uh, way of looking at it. But you know, for you, this idea of love is is very messy. And at what point do you say, okay, I'm going to keep working out the through the journey and 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 love as and be as open as I possibly can? Or I'm, you know, I'm 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 like two years into this, I gotta get out. Or you get married and you're 13 years into it and you're like, I'm out. at what point does it stop? Because I know that the idea of being messy is you're very comfortable in that sort of space. I mean, messy is what well, would well, define messy to me because messy can mean a lot of things. Uncomfortable. uncomfortable. It, yeah, it's uncomfortable. It can be violent. And I don't mean physically violent, but I mean violent in fighting and, and, and disagreeing, being polar opposites. That's messy. Yeah. I mean, I, for me, as you know, and I've gone through a lot of heartbreak in my life, and I think that's made me a better person in many ways made me a, to be hopefully a better partner to my future partner um and it's made me re-examine a lot of the assumptions that i've had of relationships um and of uh, and expectations that i might have had of my partner um but i think there's like this really beautiful idea that you know that I've had my heart broken so many times that at this point I've decided just to leave my heart open because it's so broken, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense, yeah. Because it's been battered and shattered so many times, instead of trying to fix it, because it's been shattered, it just remains open instead of thinking it's been shattered. Yeah, like, that's a lot of courage though, you know, for even, to to even fathom that you're going to just keep it open for more destruction and for for more mess right that's, that takes a lot of 
strength to to have the confidence to say, oh, it's going to turn out to be okay. But well, it doesn't even have to turn out to be okay, right? It's like, I mean, I guess I'm a Scorpio, for better or for worse, and you know, people have their assumptions about Scorpio, that we're very passionate. And I think, you know, the the highest form of human emotion is love, right? And I think for love to, in order, in order for that to be the highest form of human emotion and feeling, then you have to be willing to feel the exact opposite of that when when you're rejected or when that you know when it swings completely the other way how can you experience the highest form of human emotion and the greatest joy without being willing to experience the greatest pain and that's how i see it yeah i i see it in the way you create too because it's a, it takes a certain uh, fearlessness, I think, to put um, your vulnerable thoughts out on a page or on screen. And I've gone through this so much in my life that, uh, you know, you, I think a lot of artists struggle with, um, putting their own essence out there and it's i'm just speaking for myself now it's just it's it's really scary and um the idea of having this open heart that's been trampled on um allows you to to really receive more and receive deeper i mean i think it's true the adage that you know, the greatest art comes from heartbreak and grief and because you leave yourself vulnerable. I think because you're willing to kind of bear it all out there without any sort of inhibition and um, self-doubt, that's leaves you open to kind of creating whatever and not really caring so much. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I let's not get it wrong that I don't have uncertainty when I do something, but I'm always thinking like, you know, everyone else around me is going to doubt me. I shouldn't doubt myself. Yeah. You say that very often living in Vietnam. Um, I don't, I haven't spent the amount of time that you have there. I've been back and forth a lot. And I've noticed that this idea of vulnerability um, in society, in families, we can't really communicate openly. We, we I don't know, maybe I'm just, I, I hope I'm not crossing the line with saying such a general statement, but uh, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like there's um, sort of sometimes there's walls that are, and let's talk about just being within our own families that there is this inability to sort of really connect on that vulnerable level between our, ourselves and our parents? I think, you know, I'm only speaking from me and sort of my experience and because, um, or I mean, I'm hopefully it's relatable to the people out there, but um, 
I'm reminded of like, yeah, when, when my parents or for many of our parents, when they came over to America, they were much younger than us. They were coming without knowing anything about the place they were going, right? For the most part. And it was, it's, it, you know, I, I remember that we've had a conversation where you don't consider it a sacrifice. Them coming over wasn't a sacrifice. Um, yeah, and, we can get yeah. into that. That's yeah, we can get into that. Um, and, and you're right. In, in many levels, it wasn't a sacrifice. It was sort of a survival. Yeah. It's just, just a mode of survival. Um, I hope I don't get flack for that because uh, it's, I, I, it's a very blanket statement. Well, we definitely need to get in deeper with that what i meant by that but yeah i just don't want people to take it out of context like they yeah, do i mean but it's it's a part of like the complexity of our experience right that i don't think you can make a blake blake statement and say like everything that is a sacrifice right like what but they're taking you know i think heroism and sacrifice becomes synonymous a lot of times in courage and i think what they did was very courageous but it's not necessarily sacrifice but that's your opinion and for me i think one sacrifice you make is a sacrifice of totally giving up on your country or what you thought was your country and think and sacrificing that the idea that vietnam will never be the same vietnam that you knew it and that you're gonna sacrifice the idea of a homeland and make a new one right and so you're sacrificing a part of yourself in that way you're sacrificing a part of your identity because you're sacrificing quote unquote your homeland your motherland and what that means and um i always think of our parents as the greatest artists because they had the power to imagine a completely new future and a new home out of nothing i think that that art of creation is very beautiful and i don't think it's given enough credit to to our parents generation to have that sort of artistry that imagination um it's a good point but you know our relationship with our parents and their especially with the way that they've raised us it's easy it's sort of um simplistic to say well they didn't raise us like americans we had this immigrant background it was it it was hard for xyz but you know we we should have the sense of empathy in a way that what they were going through at that time, they had to raise children in a new country uh, after leaving their country and losing their country in many ways. And so how much, I think I, over time I've thought about that and like how the choices that they made when they were younger were based, and, and my disappointment with their choices were based on yeah. Um, expectations that were not fair, um, expectations that were created out of of a, a mythology of the American dream of the nuclear family, of what I saw on television of white picket fences and white American families that, you know, their parents would say, I love you and come home and play baseball with them and all these things that my parents had no context, right? They had no education into that world so my those expectations were unfair not to say that they get a pass on everything because of that but i think if we are to think of of um of their sacrifice in that way 
then it, we can we can create a better understanding of of their life and even you know my parents moved back to vietnam they they lived my dad still lives in vietnam my mom's sort of trans-pacific right now um and there's a lot of families who won't go back to vietnam right they they have a very sort of bad relationship and bad experience with, with the country and I think a lot of people in our generation sort of gloss over that, yeah. even in our conversations with today in, in a political level of like progressive versus conservative Vietnamese, like we're like, oh, why can't you just get over it in many ways, like get over the pains of your past. And sometimes we're too busy ignoring the bitter for the beautiful, they would say, people might say, right? And I think we need to recognize the bitter and the beautiful coexisting at the same time. Like there, there's a total right for people to be bitter because their country was taken away from them or, you know, uh, you know, their, their livelihoods were stolen, but there's also a beauty in being able to live in a country where you can um, profess your love for for Vietnam, for you can put up a Ho Chi Minh photo and that that freedom is also something to be celebrated. And I think it's just those complex, uncomfortable conversations that we aren't having with our parents or these generations where it's it's a dualistic society. It's contrast and not complexity. And I think the world needs more complex conversation. Why do you think we're not able to simply bridge that divide? Um, I mean, I think we're trying to. I, honestly, I think your podcast is, is a tool for that, to bridge divides. Um, you know, the, the prominence of social media, of cable news, of debate that is less... Um, contemplative and more uh, combative, right? There's that proliferation of competition rather than cooperation. It's all these different things. Um, are, you, yeah. are you hopeful that we one day will be able to see the, or contemplate, have our community, our Vietnamese community throughout the whole world being able to contemplate and sort of sit on the differences and and just share it and be in the space together and share the space together of right left differences Are you um, i don't even know it's like hope is the right word i would i you know for me like the little moments are enough for me i don't want necessarily or I don't believe that we're all going to come together and agree on everything. And, um, but I think there's room for civil discourse between logical, rational. But it's people. not happening, is it? I don't, I don't feel like it's happening. I mean, that's in part why I'm like, I'm so gung-ho about doing what we're doing right now is to sort of expand this idea of being comfortable with um, sitting 
with both sides and just sitting in each other's pain almost. But I'm not yeah, like I, you are. I think it starts though with you have to sort of have like some form of objectivity and almost moral objectivity, right? When 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 there's not a an objective standard of what the truth is and what fact is, then how you, it's hard to have those conversations between people. Because if there's not a way to have, you know, I, I believe in subjectivity for sure, in, in opinion and, and art and things that are subjective. But then when we're talking about things where there is objective truth, you know, there's a difference between truth with a capital T and truth with a lowercase t, right? And the idea that one truth, that objective truth is something that it's subjective, then that's when you kind of get in these arguments and you, you I think it's hard to, and you're not trying to convince people, but you are trying to have, again, civil discourse, but it's hard to have a civil discourse when the, the objective line is, is totally different, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it goes back to like misinformation and, and um, your sources of information. And, of I mean, we're speaking specifically about politics. I know that's what we're speaking about. And um, so I think it comes down, it's more a systemic thing that has to be worked out on, a, on, a, on the root level in order for us to really think about these other conversations. Because if you can't, if someone says the sky is blue and the other person says the sky is green, then how do you have a civil discourse about that? And that's why I'm not hopeful because this stuff is so uh, unclear anymore. Um, is this going on in Vietnam in in terms of sort of societal uh, disagreements? Do you feel the polar polarizing sort of people taking sides of whether whatever um, if it's politics or? Um, way of life in, in Vietnam. Is this sort of polarization happening in Vietnam or is it just unique to the Vietnamese American experience today? Um, I, this is just based on my experience. I'm not an expert in sort of like comparative culture. Um, but from my experience, most people will just not be well, like, Vietnamese locals might just not engage in a political conversation. It's it hasn't been part, and this is to say, you know, uh, a certain type of education system there where politics is not that sort of political discourse is not encouraged. encouraged yeah. And it's yeah, it's part of yeah. Well, here very much encouraged. It's you know, civics education is is like a you know, a, a pillar of the American education system for better or for worse. Yeah, it's it's almost like, um, you know, I think when I had first started to to meet all of the filmmakers, I always thought that's just, it's all about just a beautiful story, putting together something like that can kind of move you emotionally. And the more that I've been able to spend time with you, and other filmmakers, I realize that everything that we watch has some sort of political 
not direct message, but it has a viewpoint. And maybe American cinema um, being able to kind of have that freedom to kind of express viewpoints, uh, it's inextricably tied to to our freedom to to be politically expressive and open. The more that I get to know you, the more I um, I learn about how important politics are and and being open to learning about the nuances of of politics. Where did that come from for you? Well, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so right outside the seat of American power, you could say. And I think being that proximity to to uh, American seat of power always piqued my interest. And I was, you know, all most of my um, classmates' parents worked in the government and like my the customers at my parents' store were working in the government either as diplomats or, or you know, uh, bureaucrats in, in most cases. And so I, I think that, yeah, just made me interested in that. And um, I always saw, I remember, you know, my, my high school was John F. Kennedy High School and the values of John F. Kennedy were literally plastered on the wall, right? And he was a president I think more than any other president in American history really valued the role of the citizen in government and in creating a better and just country. Um, I mean, you can argue that President Obama did that as well, but I think sort of the modern model of that was created by John F. Kennedy. He wrote Profiles in Courage, right? Yeah. Okay. And... Yeah, I remember my, I had, there was this class in sophomore year. Sophomore year apparently was very formative for me. Um, sophomore year of high school, there was um, a class, NSL, National State Local Government class, um, taught by Mr. Griffith, that I was my, one of my favorite classes of all time. And we would just watch speeches by John F. Kennedy. We would learn about the creation of the Peace Corps. We, you know, I remember watching like Kennedy's inaugural speech during that class, and it just it, it ignited in me the sense of civic duty that I don't think I ever uh, had before. I mean, we had debates because there were students who wouldn't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, and we had these really long debates in class with these students of why they weren't standing, and just like feeling engaged as an adult, having that sort of political discourse as a fifteen-year-old with other other 15-year-olds and then a man who, you know, came of age during Kennedy's years, it was very enlightening. And I keep on using the word formative, but it was all these past experiences in my life, I think of how they're formative and, and make me who I am today. Um, and I, I think that class definitely had an impact on me. And for me, I think when people make films and they say it's there's no politics involved, like the act of no, having no politics involved is a political act, right? right? Um, and, um, and, you know, the idea of politics has been tainted for the past four years, or you can say for a long time, but 
I always thought of politics as the debate between competing interests to serve the common good. That might be a very utopian version of politics, but that's how I always saw it. And if you, you look at politics, you look at all these debates through that lens, then it, it, it creates a sense, I wouldn't even say it's not idealistic, but it's, there's a level of pragmatism and idealism in that statement. Like, um, I don't think Republicans on some, you know, piece of the legislation are necessarily doing something to dis, to intentionally disenfranchise the community. They're doing it because it's in the best interest of their constituents. And in, because of that, it might be disenfranchising a, a community, but they don't look at it that way. Um, but so if you look at, you know, they're in a way they're trying to better their community or the better their interests. It's selfish, but it's still the idea of, of striving for a more perfect union, right? For them at least. Um, so that's why I, I tend to not take politics personally, which is very a strange comment to make in today's day and age. Um, I, I like to think of like when someone makes or, or believes in something that's different than my opinion, where did they come from? What was their experience to form that opinion? And, and how do I put myself in those shoes to understand where they're coming from when I, when I have a debate with that person and I have a policy disagreement? It's hard to remind ourselves every time we run into people who are different than us. I think our emotions just sort of just take over. Um, yeah, it's a practice for sure. Hard, very hard to be mindful of another person. And that's my opinion. I mean, you know, there's, uh, I, I can't, again, I'm speaking for myself, and I know people who have been historically disenfranchised by policies. Obviously, they have a right to be angry and feel like they're not seen and feel invisible by these policies. So, at the I, I, I hear that and see that as well. You mentioned um, coming from the uh, seat of the country, uh, D.C., political, did you say political seat of um, the country, D.C.? Did you work in um, D.C. politics at all? Did you um, spend some time in that field? Yeah, for a long time, I mean, if people don't know I'm a filmmaker because I don't think we've talked about that at all. Um, so I'm, I, I'm actually intentionally doing that. Cause, okay, I know, I know you are, but just I have to give context to some people. Um, uh, so before I became a filmmaker, I was I was very much on a path to to the political world, to a political career. I was planning to be a lawyer, um, but like human rights lawyer, international law. Uh, specializing in international law and um, yeah I always dreamt of like oh I want to be a UN ambassador or a diplomat or win, be a Nobel Peace Prize winner laureate right um, mm -hmm. uh, and um, sorry what was the question did you ever work in DC okay uh, yeah. so yeah I did I I was briefly in the Peace Corps I lived in Kyrgyzstan 
Um, I, never, I never knew that. Okay, yeah, I lived in Kyrgyzstan before I met you, um, 2007. I left- How long? Not very long, like a summer. I left um, for some personal reasons. But wait, and, let's talk about it. I, I never- okay. Where is that in the world? Pardon my ignorance. I yeah. Yeah, but can we talk it's, about that? You no, know, near Afghanistan, um, Kazakhstan. Yeah, one of the so, bands, obviously. Yeah, so it's three months roughly, and what did you do? I was so I was okay. You know, um, taking a few steps back, I I joined the Peace Corps. I I was like, oh, I wish I could go teach English in Fiji or something, some push job, or <laughs> uh, like work in like economic development, community development, and somewhere in Asia, to be honest. Technically, Kyrgyzstan is Central Asia. I remember getting the call and they're they're like, oh, you just got stationed in Kyrgyzstan. And I'm like, is that a country I've never heard of Kyrgyzstan? Borat. Um, this is right at the time Borat was big. So I'm like, Are you, don't you mean Kazakhstan? They're like, no, Kyrgyzstan. I'm like, okay, I have to look it up immediately. And I was, yeah, I went to Kyrgyzstan. To be honest, it was right at the time that my sister um, was pregnant with my, you know, with her first child and um, my sister and I quite close. And when I was in Kyrgyzstan, um, I was with a host family and there was like a little baby there. And it just thought, it just felt like kind of, I didn't want to miss the feeling of being there for, for, for my nephew's birth, right? And it was like, I, um, and just, I think the pains of being isolated in a country like Kyrgyzstan, which is a very isolated country and something dramatically different than what I'm used to, um, all of those things like um, just created this abundancy of fear and isolation. And What were you doing there? What was your mission? I was teaching English. That was going to be. My that was it. The Peace Corps sent you there to teach English. And I mean, it shows the power of language too, right? What you know, you think you want to. I had a lot of. Before that, I mean, sort of, I'll quickly answer your other question. Like, I was. Uh, I had worked for AmeriCorps. I was building um, like development programs for immigrant communities post 9 11 trying to redevelop lower Manhattan and Chinatown. And that was, I was really interested in the idea of like rebuilding the community after tragedy, after um, something as horrific as 9-11. And, and, um, and I thought, oh, I can do that in Kyrgyzstan or, or somewhere else in the world, like a post-war society. I was very interested in, in development post-war in post-world societies, post-conflict societies. But they were just like, we need English teachers. I mean, that's what, these countries need in order to um, they felt develop is like that is mm. a huge huge um, tool that people use to to just to, to progress in 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 their own development, but also a country's development. Um, it shows how Western centric the world is, and for better or for worse. But that's what they wanted me to do. So I learned Russian for a little bit. I um, don't, don't recall any Russian anymore, but I lived there. I taught English, lived with a close family, 
Um, but I, I was dying to go back. This was 2007, summer of 2007. And um, I went back and I don't have any regrets because after I witnessed the birth of my nephew, I, work, I went to work on the Obama campaign, which was the most life-changing experience of my life. How so? Um, just, I think I, on, on sort of symbolic level, seeing someone and having a candidate with the name Barack Hussein Obama, first of all, believe that he could be president was inspiring. Just the very thought of him being president was inspiring for me. I think many, um, you know, immigrant children who always felt unseen growing up, especially immigrant children with a funny name. Um, so that was, yeah, that was one reason. It was, it was life-changing. Um, but meeting all these people from all over the world, really, that wanted to become part of this one mission to get this one person elected. And that collective sense of purpose was something I'd never experienced before in my life. I mean, we had volunteers fly over from the UK, from Greece, from Japan on their own dime to volunteer for wow. a president that they had no say in, in terms of voting, but they would not, you know, we had my, my first short film that I co-directed with uh, an old friend of mine, Adele Pham, was about a volunteer, a Japanese volunteer who knocked on over a thousand doors for the Obama campaign. Um, and th those stories will always stick with me because it just shows the, um, the diversity of, of support that he had and what, um, you know, it meant to the world that, that someone like Barack Obama could become president. And I remember the night that he became president, it was just, it was probably the most magical night of my life because yeah. we had put in so many hours of hard work. Like we were working 80 hours a week, seven days a week uh, for, from, you know, I started in June, up until November, right? Nonstop. And we didn't care. We we loved it. We would meet people old and young, um, all different races, creeds, genders, um, sexualities. And it, it was just something that was really beautiful that I don't know if I'll ever experience again in my lifetime. You know, as I listen to your stories, I think about my 15-year-old self because you've mentioned that a few times. And when I think back on my 15-year-old self and I would read about men and women that inspired me at 15, I would, if if I would be reading about somebody like you with all the accomplishments that you've you've done, I all I always would think that guy's a filmmaker. Like he studied film and he went off to make a few movies and it just got better and better and better. But what the difference between being a 15-year-old and a 45-year-old today, that 30 years, what I'm beginning to really understand now is if that is a good filmmaker, if that's a good chef, if that's a good anything, typically there's so many more experiences that help inform the art that you do so well. And it's proving um, that you need to have such a diverse experience of um, 
a diverse amount of uh, life experience to create um, products or anything that's impactful for the human journey. Yeah, I think Shakespeare says like what's past is prologue. And I think what's past is so much more than prologue, right? Like everything we experience from our past informs who we are. Um, it, 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 it molds us more than just what a prologue would do. And what we do now is so formative to what our future is gonna be. Yeah. And even when we look at our past, we, we're talking about things in our past, my past for, for this particular uh, conversation. Um, it, it makes you think about the present and the meaning that these, that everything forms into the present too, right? And it's all, they all oscillate between time and, and space in, in many ways. And I think um, even in the work that I want to tell today, the idea of like reimagining our past and our past experiences and remembering those experiences and bringing them into the present and giving them value and meaning to today's generation and today's audiences is so important. I think that's why I'm, I'm such a proponent and advocate for representation, representational stories, because the idea of like seeing yourself and the value of seeing your experience that you grew up in, it, it, it makes you feel more seen today as well, right? It's, you might for the longest time not think of what you did when you were younger as having any impact or having any value or what your parents did or those little little moments of joy or love that they gave were, were kind of nothing. But if, if we are able to reframe those little actions and those little stories that maybe we took for granted when we were younger, and place meaning that in them now through whatever art we're creating or the conversations that you're having with your guests, then that's that's part of sort of the experience of being an artist, being Vietnamese in many ways. We have begun to talk uh, recently in the last maybe two years um, about ritual and tradition. And uh, before that, um, I was very turned off by those things. Those very words, ritual, just makes me check out. And, uh, you know, as the last um, maybe seven years of vacationing with, you know, you and your family, my family, all vacationing together, there's a sort of uh, deep respect that you have for holiday traditions and the way we organize the dishes that come out um, and the way we clean up the table and the way we uh, put out the Thanksgiving food and the spread and make things look beautiful over Christmas, over the meals that we've shared, our families have shared. Um, where did you get that? I mean, did you grow up with a lot of ritual or how did your, um, your family upbringing affect this idea of tradition and, and ritual? Well, I think for me, ritual started with the family altar, right? That each Vietnamese family has. And when it was either during Thet or 
when it was the death anniversary, we would, you know, light incense and we would offer fruit and food to our ancestors. And at the time, I didn't, you know, my parent, I was like four or five. They're like, say something to your ancestors. And I'm like, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> what, where are they? This is freaking me out, right? Um, but I, you know, there is a, there's a sense of, that's a marker, right? It's an anchor that we can hold on to. And I'm always looking for an anchor. I think that's helped me stay grounded and, and made me kind of understand life better. And in sort of the short time we have, there are these anchors and markers that we can look back onto that give us the sense of where we are in our life and in, in our place in life at the in place and time in our in our timeline. Even though I think our timelines are infinite, but that's another conversation. Um, and and so that was my first sense of ritual, right? Um, did your parents I, celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas and do all the? No, no, they didn't really celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, they did celebrate Christmas though, and every year we would put up a Christmas tree. And the 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 last year that we didn't put up the tree is when my parents got divorced, mm. and I think that really was devastating for me. How old were you? Twelve. Oh shit. And that was such a joyous time when we put up the tree together. My dad would come home early for work. You know, my mom didn't put up the tree. She was still at work. She wasn't a practice. She was Buddhist. Um, But it was me, my sister, and my dad. I felt like those were one of the only activities that we did together. Like, you could see a beginning, middle, end to that process. My parents would take us out shopping and things like that, but that was, you know, that didn't feel like there wasn't a ritual to that. But the idea of like putting up a tree and like the last thing you put up is is that star or that angel and like taking a step back and looking at that tree as a family together and, and seeing the fruits of our labor and the time we spent together was very meaningful. And it was a shock to me when I was 12 when we didn't do that for the first time, right? And it, you know, my sister tried to continue that ritual and it's, it was even harder because she had left for college that same year. Mm-hmm. So my world turned upside down in many ways. And I kind of felt like without an anchor in my family, even though my family was not necessarily close, like my sister and I were very close, but we had that anchor of, of wanting to put up my Christmas tree, of the Christmas tree. And my sister, I know she, she got arguments with me because she didn't understand it too. She's like, why do you want to put up a stupid Christmas tree, right? And, you know, it was just a symbolic thing in many ways, but it, it made me understand like that power of ritual and like the meaning of doing something together um, at a certain time and reminding ourselves to like, take a bit of a pause in 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 a year and days that can kind of um you know blend into each other right and that's that's why you know those those markers are again important for me
you know, it's a, it's re revealing to hear that story because I think many Vietnamese kids, and I don't know in Vietnam today, but many Vietnamese kids in the U.S., when their parents heard birthday, the fuck, we don't celebrate birthdays. We're, what do you mean birthday? Like, yeah, there's none of that. Um, for the most part, there, there wasn't, I think, a tradition of celebrating birthdays in Vietnam. And then I think when I was growing up, it was so silly to even say, hey, mom and dad can have a birthday party or can have cake or there was no such thing as birthdays. But has that changed in our culture? Uh, I mean, it comes that, from what like the lack of birthday celebrations. Um, I think I don't know. It's I feel like Vietnamese now, like a modern Vietnamese family, they have bigger birthday parties than we do. Oh, really? Vietnam. But maybe that's just the kind of Western influence. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier a little bit about that expectation of our family, of our parents, where we create this mythology of, of the perfect family, right? Uh, and you, you know, one of the things we're, as a filmmaker, when you're writing a script or you're doc making a documentary, you're, you're the best things to film are, are ritual. Is to film a wedding, a funeral, a birthday, because it it it's something that can connect to an audience, yeah. but it's something that again is ritualistic and has a sense of grandeur in some ways, and it's it says a lot, it symbolizes a lot, and because of that, I think growing up when you watch like these American sitcoms you see the kid's birthday party and something silly happens, right? And I think that idea was ingrained in my head as a little kid. And, you know, my parents didn't really remember my birthday. I sort of like had to nudge them and remind them. Um, Do they remember today? No. I mean, my dad might because it's on Facebook, but my mom, uh, you know, I you know, it's like a month later. She's like, what is your birthday? It doesn't bother you today, does it? No, because I think I've kind of, um, I went, maybe evolved isn't the right word, but I just have less expectation of my parents' relationship, of mine and my parents' relationship, for, for better or for worse. Course, yeah. I mean, it'd be, I'm sure if they wish me a happy birthday, and I'm, my dad will probably watch this, um, listen to it but I think I would my dad wishes me a happy birthday yeah on Facebook um, but it's you know I don't know what the feeling will be like unless it happens I I imagine it'd be a I'd have a feeling of joy if someone wished me a happy birthday I think most people get that feeling of joy of somewhat of a validation um, as you know, as, as superficial it might sound, but having a friend recognize that you were born on this day, there's, yeah, there's little things in life that are, that um, feel nice, right? Um, but, you know, in Vietnam, I think it's, yeah, it's crazy how big the birthdays have become uh, in, in certain families. It's like Halloween now in Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, Halloween's not big as it is, like, in, say, New York, where, like, kids go out. And, yeah. But, you know, I mean, that 
if you want to compete with any other holiday in the world, I think that would win. Yeah. Without any other celebration. And so it's not, not, you know, this, I think it's, it's sort of, um, it's not fair to say like Vietnamese don't like ritual. It's just like which rituals we actually place our. Yeah. I, that, that ritual is one of my favorite by far, even just the thought of having bánh chưng in the house and the pickled um, veggies that sit in my, my kitchen because my mom, you know, brings it and it, uh, it brings feelings of joy. And uh, why is that ritual different from any other ritual? You, I mean, when you were starting this this sort of topic, it's like you're never into ritual. But if you say you're into that, then you are totally into sure. it. Sure, but I think mine comes from a religious sort of uh, a religious upbringing that was not healthy. And I think the idea of ritual and sacraments and, you know, I think you've revitalized that part. You and another friend of mine, a dear friend of mine named Tad, has really revitalized this sort of sense of... Um, Ritual going hand in hand with spirituality. I think that's a necessity. When I was a kid, I went to a boarding school called St. Michael's Prep. And um, the priests and the brothers would wear these robes that they are very similar to the Pope's uh, uh, garb. And it has a little hood. It's all white. And um, it was a very angelic scene. And we would go in to do evening prayers every night or, you know, on, on Saturday or Sunday. The priest... And brothers would sing in Gregorian chants. And my father used to always say, you're not going to get this now, but when you get a lot older, you're going to really appreciate these days. So I don't, I, don't, I don't expect you to really appreciate it, but just record what I'm saying. And uh, it's very ritualistic. That part of my life was buried because of my hate for you know, religion at the time. And, but now as I, you know, spend more time with you and with Tad, I, I become more aware of how important um, this sort of human anchoring is. And one big example is uh, before you really moved to L.A., the group of friends that we have are, were very spread out. And in a very short amount of time, you've managed to organize um, the group outings, the group dinners, the group everything, and sort of put a an anchor in the group. And knowing now that you know you deep you think deeply about these sort of like these um, these ritualistic ways of thinking, partitioning events in in your mind, it really just opens up this um, ability for the whole group to now bond on a very deep level. We have something to kind of look forward to thank you i mean i didn't i thought that's how la people hung out anyway so weird right um not really it was very random before and uh now we we rally around uh you know birthdays and i mean we we were all very close and you know but we just didn't have a i mean the the Christmas that we just shared together, you know, our big group of friends, um, everybody was COVID tested, everybody got tested. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the dinner was very special and it was very special because of the amount of the heavy emphasis and, you know, just sitting together around a big table 
and eating this beautiful meal that um, Chef Win Bui, you know, put together for us was um, rallying around this sort of idea of anchor. And um, the more I think about my deep dive into this exercise of, of, of figuring out what it means to be Vietnamese, it, it, it now be, becomes apparent that, you know, this idea of having ritual, whether it's religious or cultural, is vital to human existence. Yeah, I, I, I think it goes back to your memories of like, yeah, that, right? And that has always been a gathering place for Vietnamese families. And I think the idea of a meal has been a gathering place for all families of all different cultures for, for, since the beginning of time, right? And we're starting to lose that as a society. We're starting to lose the the art of gathering, the art of of appreciating conversation. And I'm guilty of this. Of like when when I was growing up, my parents would leave on the TV and the news in the background, and we wouldn't talk to each other. Um, God, that's so sad to think about. It's like the most sad image of a child having to watch TV and not engaging with the parents are in the same room, but in essence, right? Yeah. But at the same time, I was grateful that we were all eating to get dinner together. Wow. Some people didn't have that privilege either, right? Some kids would just watch TV by themselves and eat dinner. You know, I, I'm, I'm just have to share this uh, very proud thing about my family. My father and mom made sure we had dinner every night together and there was no TV. The four of us would eat. My father was so funny sometimes that literally when he cracked a joke or we cracked a joke, I don't know if it was on purpose or what, but many times he would be on the floor holding his stomach and laughing. And the floor at our house was really dirty because, you know, it's just so much traffic in and out. He would be on the floor and sometimes I would be peeing in my pants at dinner because we couldn't hold our laughter. I mean, that's sort of the the, the family. And I always thought that every family was like that, you know? Um, and the more I've gone out and you know talked to people like you and it's just such a sad and you know just a when i when i think about that um i think and i'm not trying to change other people's way of life but it is uh you and i talk about this too I, it, it's not a segue but it's it's building on top of this like, a whole idea of like cultures and i won't say what culture but a lot of cultures that have dinners together and really talk to their children and just engage. And my wife and I, we talk about this constantly. It's how it's so difficult to be present. So difficult to just put my phone down and engage with my children. And I know they only have a short amount of time with me. They're on loan with, for just a short amount of time. But even knowing that it's a short temporary thing, having that phone or drifting off mentally, it's so much easier than engaging with each other and talking to each other yeah i think it's telling that our most recent president would often eat alone watch the news eat dinner by himself and president obama would make it he would stop every meeting he'd make sure like 6 6 30 he'd go and have dinner with his two children and his wife 
and nothing could change that in the eight years that he was president, right? If he was in DC and they were in the same city, they would always have dinner together. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's very telling. Yeah, very telling. My wife is uh, uh, just very strict about being at home at five. Five to eight or nine when children go to bed. And I'm beginning to see the logic and the and the strength that it, it has given me and just my own personal life to follow and adhere to that because that is an anchor. That's a ritual that's so important to the development of these little people that uh, that we're raising. Yeah, I think they they talk about this. I might be going off on kind of a tangent here, but like the idea of symmetry in nature is also a tenet of beauty that people equate that with beauty. And the idea of symmetry is having something um, like a circle is like kind of the perfect form of symmetry, right? Because if you rotate a circle, even though the points within that circle change from your viewpoint, your perspective, that circle looks exactly the same. And there's a beauty in that idea, right? I think that's the same when you think about how we live our lives in that the, the idea, again, of something that can anchor us, that reminds us of something, of something familiar. Familiarity is something that I think creates a sense of security and comfort um, for us and for children. And the, the 6 p.m. dinner is sort, sort of like a symmetry of life, I think, a symmetry of the day that helps us and, and gives us, yeah, a bit of, of of, um, yeah, just something that we're looking for in order just to feel joy in some ways and feel beauty. Mm -hmm. You know, sounds funny when I say Confucius said or Confucius says, but Confucius did say. All right, Bruce Lee. <laughs> uh, if you can't uh, basically take care of your family, then how do you take care of the city? If you can't take care of the city, how do you take care of the world? And um, it's true. It's true on every level. And I think taking care of our family first, taking just being there and being present, it is one of the most hardest things to do uh, in any society. I don't think it's just um, the U.S. or Vietnam. or I'm sure everybody deals with that. Um, that struggle to 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 be a part of our um, our children's life, but but this is why I bring it up. You have turned out to be the the poster child of being able to be present with your friends, right? When you when you're with me or when you're friends, you're able to really be present and have a real conversation. But yet you weren't raised with that. How did you? arrive at it. So my question, I always ask my guests this too. It's like, okay, so let's, let's give pressure points to our kids. Let's like put them in hard spots or maybe not do it intentionally. But when they do go through these hard times and pressures or a lack of parents and having watched TV and eat dinner by themselves, does it spur, does it create a, a product or a kid or a child or a human that eventually balances the symmetry out in the long run right or does it just depend i mean 
you know, am I going to give my children all of this like five, six o'clock attention for dinner? And then they're just going to turn out to be like, they take it for granted. And then they just turn out to be empty, you know, empty bozos in their mind because they've had so much uh, privilege of having a father and a mom that really checked in. Or is it like my win, you know, he went through some crazy pressure or lack of uh, family connection at dinner or what or whatnot. And, but you turned out to be even more anchoring in, you know, in so many families that I know that, you know, grew up with um, complete households. Well, I mean, I should give a lot of credit to my sister mm. and, and my relationship with her. And she was very much my anchor growing up. And so even though, yeah, I didn't, I wouldn't consider my childhood to be bad in, in, in any ways. My, my family, my parents worked hard to put food on our table to give us shelter. And they gave us love in the way that they knew it. And so I, you know, my recollection of these experiences is not meant to be some critique of their parenting, but um, it, no, it makes me realize like, it's again, hate to keep on using the word formative, but it forms me and it forms like who I aspire to be or, or what I believe, is the path that I would like to take as as a caregiver, as a parent one day. But yeah, my, my sister was helped teach me compassion. And also, honestly, the church taught me a lot of these mm. things. And, and, you know, even though I'm not a practicing Catholic today, I think the, the, the morality, the allegories that I was taught when I was young gave me this object, this moral objectivity um, this sense of compassion that I carry with me today. And um, I don't, I don't um, pretend like I know the answer. To, I mean, sometimes I pretend like I know the answer to a lot of things, but I'm trying to change that about myself as well. Um, <laughs> I am trying to be more curious and less like certain about things. Um, but yeah, I, this is, I don't know what type of parent I'm going to be like, how my experience as a child would, would make me as a parent. I, I'm, I hope I can be a parent, a good parent to my children if I have children one day. Um, but I, I don't know how I would act. You know, it's, it's like the, the, the question of nurture versus nature and yeah. something that I don't have the answer to really at this point. You um, you link so many, and I bring this up again. You link so many people up together. I uh, remember a few years back, I needed to take a trip to Bangladesh, and um, I reached out to. I think I just posted on a Facebook post, and you shot back with a DM right away. I have somebody in Bangladesh, Misha, and um, you made the introduction. Uh, that move that you did um i mean i would always had that kind of respect for you as a connector but um where did you learn how important that kind of stuff is and that it's a big skill to to have and i think it is almost a foundation of um you know filmmaking aside your skills aside i i, I want to 
almost give credit um, in that department. Um, it's a huge ability. What did you learn how to do that? Just to clarify, what's the exact ability that you're speaking of? To connect, to remember um, how important you know human connection is, and and referring one good friend to another good friend. I mean, that's a very rare quality because people are typically just like, oh, I don't want to make any connections. I mean, I just want to keep the connections to myself. But you've always seemed to put people into contact with other people and having that faith that people are inherently good people. Um, what is the root of that? Where did that come from? The Obama campaign? or I had never thought about it as like something that was like, unique to me i can tell you it's rare i've you know i've been in the world of uh business for many years people are very um you know they hold those cards very close to their themselves and it's rare when you meet people who are um very f open and free to, to to hand out contacts and make connections you you, you know beyond your um I mean, I think if someone is my friend, I would like them to meet my other friends around the world. And I know what it means to like, I've been in the place where I've gone to a, to a, a new country without knowing anyone and someone connecting me. And the idea of welcoming a stranger to a new place, if I can help make that easier for a friend then i don't I, there's no downside to that for me at whatsoever uh to, to make there is a, kind of a downside if you think of it. there's a multiple downsides what if one guy doesn't hold up the end of the bargain and is embarrassing you know you because you made the connection that's one downside the other downside is like i'm going to hook up somebody else with a contact that i worked very hard to kind of retain for eight years and you know i'm just going to give you know a lot of people so there are downsides i mean to there's a science i, I you know what it is game theory i, I think we can go back to that it, there's got to be some game theory that you've always talked to me about about connecting people because it's not it's not a normal trait well i mean i'm trying to think i mean to be honest yeah could be a vanity thing to be honest to show that i know a lot of people around the world just being completely transparent that could be a thing um very honest answer yeah but i just i you know we talk about this idea of reciprocity versus yeah. trans being transactional i think if i can be my brother's keeper then someone else will also be my brother's keeper if that's the reciprocity i see in that of like if if someone is i don't want my friend to get these are and we're speaking specifically about friends right i wouldn't i vouch for you and i vouch for misha um and i knew you would get along i don't randomly say you should meet this person because you're going to be in the same town i think you would get along with this person and they also happen to be in the same place mm. um so in that sense but I also want to surround myself with friends that I can always vouch for, right? Yeah. Why would you, I mean, 
I, I try to, yeah, my circle of friends are people that I love and that I think that they, my other friends will also love. I think that you have this um, perspective on Vietnam because you've lived there for a long time and this idea of separating sort of like your Americanism when you lived in Vietnam. You, you, you made sure that you didn't taint the waters or taint the, the, the people that you hung out with, uh, with this, your American ideals, or you, you were able to very smoothly sort of blend in and, and leave the Western kind of culture. You, you, you were very mindful of it. Well, well okay. Well, let's to think about it in sort of a comparative sense of like, when you walk into someone's home, do you critique their decor? Do you, dec do you, you go into their cupboard and critique what they have in there it's like a sign of respect when you walk into someone's shore and you know the same reason that asians take off their shoes it's a sign of respect to that person right is that home right they are not going to bring the dirt from outside into your shelter and and so i i look at it whenever i try to like think of my opinion on, on some of these larger issues that uh, that society wants me to have an opinion on, it goes back to like, what are my values on a very granular level? And when I go to a country, I respect their culture and, and their, that I'm a visitor into that place. We are in essence like visitors everywhere we go. Right. Sure. But I think that one of the reasons I returned to America is that I'm staking this as my home, restaking it as my home, reclaiming it as my home. You've lived on the East Coast. You've lived in New York. You lived on the West. You're now living on the West Coast. You lived in Vietnam. What are, um, what are the really the 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 real differences of the three places that you've lived like i've always had a lot of respect for guys from the east coast i tell you that all the time there's you know a sense of seriousness there's a tradition and i think you know, out here in the west coast we're, we're a lot more just relaxed but in your mind what are the the profound differences between living in these three places yeah i should add i lived in london too and now you found out i lived in kyrgyzstan and i did live in Italy very briefly too. So, um, I mean, every place has their differences. I think that's the beauty of living in different places, right? I mean, specifically America, um, I, I don't know if I experienced the West Coast enough since I moved here during the pandemic. So that's a very different way to enter into any space is through, um, a moment of of pain and urgency and tragedy right um i mean to say that though the the second week i moved to new york was september 11th so i did move there when it was very much a place of, of tragedy uh, but it's it, it turned into a place of resiliency for me because i stayed there 12 years after september 11th, like for a long time and that's why i fell in love with new york is that i saw that sense of we're gonna rebuild after this we're not gonna 
sort of let this become our our identity as a, as a as a city that is only affected by 9-11 but what happens more it's a city that's affected by the days after um i think um on a very sort of um, again superficial level people think that east coast and especially new york is a very you know entrepreneurial city it's a hustle and city of hustle and bustle um city without much pause and for me the west coast is a city or the west coast in los angeles is a city of, of pause comparatively mm. the city um where you're it's obviously spread out geographically compared to to new york and i think i'm, I'm very much into the, how cities are designed and how that influences yeah. the way that people live in in that design and i think because of that i i came here because i knew i had a group of friends that i could kind of bypass the 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 negative effects of living in a very sprawling city because i didn't need to make friends or at, immediately and i didn't have to have that obstruction new york um it's much easier to make friends. It's still difficult because the city is so large and it's always moving so quickly. Um, and in Vietnam, I I sort of came into Vietnam with a, a serious relationship that became uh, my anchor for better or worse when I was there. And from there, I kind of sprouted into other sort of friendships. Um, but I'm not really answering your question. Well, I'm, in some ways I am, but yeah, well, it, it's, it's a very broad question. Yeah, and I'm leading into another um, question because I think uh, the three or four places that you've spent a lot of time, um, I think that there's a, a next stage that you've talked about. Um, this idea of, you know, the idea of being able to create in a space now where there's not a lot of distraction. Uh, namely the desert. Can you tell me a little bit about your attraction to, um, you know, one place in particular is uh, uh, the deserts out here in California. Can you talk, go into a little bit about your vision for for living um, or building something out there? Um, sure. I should prefix by saying the first time you took me out to the desert, I hated it. <laughs> and um i remember we were like driving past we were on the 10 driving past the the, the you know the windmills there um and oh, the turbines right um and you're like oh it's so beautiful out here and i was like it's so barren this is like my first reaction because my idea of nature it, again it's like yeah east coast mentality where it's about abundance and density and lush forest right and and the desert is the opposite of that. Um, but over time, this past year, spending more time in the desert um, and being able to see sort of um, the sky and the whole landscape in, in one view is, is is something that's a different experience for me. And um, I 
as a filmmaker, as an artist, I'm always thinking about how space, how I create the optimal space for my mind to create. Like, like the idea of having something that's blank that that I can, you know, paint my canvas on, uh, you know, um, figuratively. So um, the desert to me is almost like this Thoreauvian retreat, right? To get away from from the sprawl of of an urban environment like LA and give myself a refuge. And I, you know, I look back at the artists that I admire the most who had these type of retreats. And I'm very much a student of history of like these artists didn't, you know, they, there is a reason they were great artists. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier, even of like intention and, and, and did I know if I was, or the process. And I think you create an optimal environment for your process to strive. And you know your process and you know how you work and you know what you need to make what you consider your best art. Um, and I, in, in, in many ways, I, people who know me, I'm very, um, I have minor obsessive compulsive disorder where I like to see things in parallel lines or I don't like to see a lot of um, clutter and I think it just, um, especially when I'm writing, I like the idea of like the only thing that I see is what's in my brain. I'm going to put it onto the page or put it onto a screen. And that's how I felt. I mean, not everyone works in the same way. Um, but I hope that by creating this, this retreat, this refuge, um, there are other artists who I can create a community for in the future who are looking for the same thing. Why is that important to have, you know, a place to have these artists come in and be together? Um, I think a sense of community for me is super important in, in, in not just being an artist, but just being a human being. Um, I, I, I don't consider myself an extrovert. Some people... I mean, you can answer this after if, I, if you consider me an extrovert, but um, I, I like a healthy exchange of ideas and sharing of experiences. And I think conversation is a way to spark um, creativity and, and inspiration. And I like to kind of learn from people around me and um, hopefully, you know, make it uh, uh, reciprocate those, that, those ideas and what people teach me, I can teach them or create partnerships. And I very much think, know that filmmaking is a collaborative art form. So as many places that I can form collaboration and community, it's, um, I think it's helpful to not just for my own art, for, but the art of, as a community. Um, and in a way, I, I think about legacy a lot, but not legacy in, in, well, this would be sort of a physical legacy, but um, there's a quote from like James Baldwin, who's like probably my favorite writer. And he talks about his mortality. Um, and I'm sort of paraphrasing this quote, like he said, um, when you 
look through the wreckage and rubble um, when someone's digging through the ruins of my life, I pray that somewhere in those ruins and that wreckage, they'll find me and that they'll find something useful in that wreckage that I've left behind, right? And I think about that when I'm creating art and when I'm creating films is that in the stories that I want to tell, there's something in those stories that when I pass away, when I'm not here, that someone finds meaning in, in that story and that, again, those ruins and wreckage I left behind. And, and maybe the space in the desert is, is a physical um, manifestation of that idea in many ways. It's beautiful. It's, um, it's a beautiful thought um, for me to even sit here and visualize what that means um, out in the desert, um, Joshua Tree or Palm Desert or Palm Springs. It makes me think about um, our friend Stefan. I, I bring him up in a lot of the, the podcasts and what kind of influence he had on our, our group. And it's like in many ways when people say, you know, say their name, say their name so it doesn't be forgotten. Issa and I were just talking about that in another episode too. We talked at length about his influence on our group and how, you know, even though he's gone, he's left such a beautiful imprint on all of us who's, who got the privilege to, to be near him and around him. What are your God, I, I don't even know how to ask this because it's just sort of it's so personal what you and I went through during the morning that you called. But um, you know, I, I want to attribute a lot of the um, opportunity that I had, and I can say this to you because you you were there with me um, on a on a specific project. I think um, I was in and out of the film business, and Stefan really wanted to make sure that I was attached to. Um, something that he was writing and he wanted to have Anderson attached and made sure that we were on the team. And you are a young, um, young filmmaker starting out and he put you on the, the project um, for Saigon Yo. And uh, I will always thank him for that, for, you know, he could have gone many ways because he was already an award winning filmmaker and he could have just, you know, need, didn't need to honor his word. But time and time again, he just made sure that Anderson and I were always on that project to make sure that it moved along. And he gave us sort of the keys to the car to say, hey, drive me to the place where it needs to go. And that sense of community of bringing you, Elizabeth I, Danny Doe, and Anderson and Michael, community, and your James Baldwin quote, of the wreckage it's not even a wreckage his life wasn't you know a wreckage at all it was in fact a very beautiful life and i never want to forget that and having this opportunity to talk to you i just wanted to ask you to share some some thought um about stefan gogger well I'll share like the first time I met Stefan because it's a funny story. I try to light, lighten up this conversation a bit. But uh, Stefan had just come out with Al the Sparrow and I was a 
you know, young filmmaker in New York. I didn't know any other Vietnamese filmmakers except for like a couple. Um, and I remember like seeing his, I had a subscription to like movie filmmaker magazine or something like that. And I remember where he did an interview and I was like, oh my God, this guy like made Cal and the Sparrow. It's a great film. Um, and I was, I was so eager to meet him one day and I was lucky enough to, to go out to Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival for, for this project that I did. And I remember opening night, I met Stefan and I was like so starstruck. And, and, you know, after the opening night party, we wanted to go to the after party. And he's like, oh, you know, just ride with me. And I was like, oh my God, like he's just like that nice of a guy to like let me come and ride with him. And um, we were walking to his car and I was expecting, you know, I was like, I didn't know better. I was like, oh, filmmakers, directors must make so much money. And I was expecting like a nice BMW or Mercedes. And then it's like his broken down, what kind of car was it? Like a forerunner or like a, it was like a cruiser or something. Land cruiser that was like probably like 15 years old and um, broken down and full of, you know, yeah. And in the passenger seat, when I got in, he, he had like tons of just like clothes on it. And he's just like, hey, don't worry, I'll move it to the back seat, just throws it to the back. And um, and it was, it definitely changed my perception of what a filmmaker was. And in a beautiful way, that sense of like, of, of humility, modesty. And, and you know, we, we often say that Stefan really had no ego. And I think that was a beautiful thing that even, with a film like Saigon Yo, he gave me a chance. I didn't have much experience at all, but I think he just knew that he was going to spend a summer in Vietnam and he wanted to make a film with his friends. And like we've lost that spirit of filmmaking nowadays, right? We're just thinking about points and box office and and who's going to watch it and what camera we're going to use and less about the process, like how much joy we'll get in making the film. And he had he made films with so much joy, dude. And that's such a beautiful legacy that he imparted on me. That's part of something with the James Baldwin quote that when I look through and right the idea of wreckage and ruin is a is a, obviously a figurative term that in in my searching through the ruins of my experiences with Stefan. That's something that he left behind with me. And in this sort of passing on, we all, there was a few of us that got together to put together a company after his death. Um, the spirit of community, the spirit of getting together and having a good time um, is why we all got together, right? For our company, East Films. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that journey? Um, it's a bit hazier for me, honestly. <laughs> it feels like a long time ago. Um, I think, you know, you and I had separate conversations. Anderson and I had separate conversations. Me, Lynn Fancinet, Ham John were all directors. We were living in Vietnam at the same time wanted to form like a Three Amigos type of collective based on, you know, the Three Amigos of Mexican cinema. Um, and I think with Stefan's death, it was a wake up call in many ways that 
why haven't why aren't we doing this sooner why aren't we um um you know codifying this group and so um i think that was how east was born and it was just a natural um idea um to look to ask jenny Zhang Lei to join and, and Li Ngo because they were part of that you know collective and and so yeah that's how east was formed and it's very much with stefan's spirit it's a it's a huge um honor for me to sit with you in the last um few hours to to talk about anything i wanted to talk about um and i thank you for indulging me and um opening up and um i know we're gonna have plenty more chances to um get back on something and uh hopefully we'll cover film or not but i thoroughly have enjoyed being able to to really open it up and 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 talk about things that um were responsible for your development that's always been my um i've always been curious about you know how you've been how how were you shaped to become the the person that you are and uh you've affected uh, my life in in many many ways that uh, i will continue you and anderson you know when it comes to um my life and in the business of 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 what we do um have really affected uh, my trajectory and obviously with stefan as well so i thank you for all of those years and i thank you for you know coming on today thank you for having me um i you know you're one of the most generous people i know uh very kind and with this podcast i think um curious and i think curiosity is something that's important in in our society that's often forgotten i think we come in with a lot of assumptions of what we know about people the world about experiences but i value your your how much how much you're curious about life and about people around you and i think that's uh one of your greatest qualities i love that about you ken so thanks Thank for having i i appreciate that very much and um have a wonderful happy new year uh chuk mong namai um as we say okay chuk mong namai <laughs>